0: The reading tonight is from Colossians 1, 1 through 20. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile Himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, we can come together and hear from you tonight, that in hearing from your word that you confront us with who you are. That you don't leave us just to our own imaginations, our own affections, our own desires, but that you give us your spirit and your word to lead us to truth and not error. That we might hope in Christ and delight in him. And so in this time, Lord, I ask that you would confront us with your truth. That you would challenge and change us to be more like your Son, our Savior. And we pray all these things in his name and for his name. Amen. So, if I asked you to uh, think of a chair... Uh, First, you probably think of the one that you're sitting in right now, uh, which is a very nice chair. Um, But uh, if I ask you to think of a chair, uh, you might think of the chair that you sit in at work or your favorite recliner at home. Uh, You can think of a chair somewhere, somehow. Um, And and you would probably be thinking of lots of different chairs, okay? Now, this is what Plato would call chairedness. All right. See so you're you're thinking of a chair and he would say that that chair is but a shadow. There is the ultimate chair, the form up there. Somewhere there is the chair like capital C chair. And you can just conceive of the shadow that is chairness, chair-like. It is a weak shadow of a chair. Okay. Now, if I asked you to imagine Jesus, now you might go back to Sunday school class and like, you know, felt bored Jesus. And he's, you know, standing there and with his awesome hair and his righteous beard and, and all those things. And, or maybe you think of oil painting Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and, and so he's like nice and proper and he somehow found a really good comb out, out there. Uh, and, and so he looks, you know, nice and put together. Uh, or maybe business Jesus, like with the with casual polo. Uh, but, but you can imagine like some, some Jesus in your mind, right? Or maybe, you know, you just go for like, maybe it's baby Jesus that you think of, or Jesus singing uh, lead for Leonard, Leonard Skinner with angel wings in front of his angel band. No, you don't go that? Okay. Uh, so you can conceive this image of Jesus. Now moving away from just what he might look like, what do you think about him? Is he loving? Is he kind? Is he angry? Is he out to get you? Is he a moral man that's just worthy of emulation? Is he a good figure for your kids to learn about? Because maybe he will help them stay in some bounds of morality. Who is this Jesus that you think of? see, there is an ultimate Jesus. Like there is Jesus, capital J, Jesus. And we can, all can, we can conceive and we can imagine these personal Jesus, Jesus-ish, Jesus-like. But there is an ultimate Jesus that we don't get to just kind of put together based upon our affections or ideas of what we would like Jesus to be like. There's a fixed... Jesus. And so, really, something that, that is worthy of our consideration is if this Jesus that we can conceive of in our minds matches up with this real Jesus. And the way that we do that, the, where we go to even think like that, is God's word. You see, when we, when we hold up this Jesus that we can conceive of in our minds with the Jesus of the Scriptures, then, then we're no longer just hoping in or thinking of an imaginary Jesus, but the true Christ of the Scriptures. Now, in Colossae, which is about 10 miles or so from Laodicea, and a hundred miles from Ephesus. Uh, Colossae used to be a really uh, bustling town, like a, a lot of money there. And, and in some history where it mentions Colossae, uh, they were talked about as being pretty wealthy. But then things changed. Uh, really, more specifically, the roads changed. And often, you know, if, if, if you were talking about a, a city that was on a, on a river, a river city, you know, back uh, you know, in, in the early days of America. If you were a river city, a lot of commerce happening, so city just boom town. Or where the railroad was, and then where the highway was, and then where the airport, so it keep, you know, keeps changing, similar to that with Colossae. Things change, the roads change, and so it kind of becomes a small town, this small city. And it's not really something at that time that they would have thought of as a city that is going to have a a letter written to it that's going to be read for centuries and centuries by millions and millions and millions of people they wouldn't think of that but a letter was written to them by Paul the gospel had gone out to this area and it had been fruitful believers had heard about it and then they took the gospel to this city and a church was started and after some time, some confusion set in. There were people there, it might have been one individual or a couple of people, came in and they were false teachers. They had a false gospel. It was you know, Jesus plus something. Jesus nuanced a bit. An imaginary Jesus is talked about. And so there was confusion and Paul writes concerning this confusion. Now, that wasn't the the only reason that he wrote this letter. He wrote to encourage them, to encourage them in the faith. But he also addresses, at different points, the problem of these false teachers. People were starting to turn away from the true gospel, the Jesus of the scriptures, to a false, imaginary Jesus. Jesus. And one of the ways that, that you, we can kind of understand maybe what some of the controversy was, some of the fiction that was being put out there, um, is, the, is this introduction where, where he, he starts to address these people by saying that he thanks God for their faith. Ever, ever since he's heard about them and heard that there were believers in Colossae, he has been praying with thanksgiving to the Lord that there are believers there. And so he goes through all of this and he begins with this thanksgiving and thanking God for them. And he says in verse 6 since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, he's delighting that the gospel went out, that the gospel was fruitful, that the Spirit was moving and illuminating and revealing truth to these people, that they believed it, that they were being transformed. But there is this problem, this nagging problem. And so really what we're going to focus in in this, in this large introduction here in chapter one, we're going to look at 15 through 20, because in that point, Paul digresses, as he always does. I mean, one of the a thorn in the side uh, pardon the pun but a thorn in the side of a lot of people that read Paul is that he, uh, he would always digress. And I, I, ha, I have a, a particular affection for this because I do that. Like my notes are, are ridiculous tonight um, because I, I get a thought and then I go over here and then I get a thought and I end up over here. And Paul does that. And I imagine him pacing as they're doing their best to keep up with everything that he's saying and writing it all out. And one place that Paul does this really often is when he talks about Jesus. Jesus when he gets to what Jesus has done, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he goes off. And when he has heard that this gospel has gone out, these people have believed, and then people are leading them astray, Paul gets fired up. Especially when it comes to muddling the view of Jesus. See, a part of this false teaching was probably that um, they were saying that there are a lot of uh, different beings, angels and whatever, that, that could mediate between God and man, and that Jesus was just one of the many mediators. So you could, you could put your hope in Jesus, or you could have another mediator, some other angel that you could hope in. And when Paul hears about this, he gets fired up. But he does this, he responds to this in a really unique way. He doesn't say, I've heard that people have been teaching this, and so let me show you all the ways that that does not work out. He He does something really interesting, and I think that it's really important for us to pick up on this principle of how he fights the fiction. Because in today's church, There's fiction out there. Books are released. Videos are released. uh, And fiction goes out. Confusion goes out. And we can learn a lot from how Paul handles it here. He digresses. Uh, Look at verse 11. You can kind of see how it leads into this digression. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is where Paul takes off. I mean, you get him started talking about the forgiveness of sins and the work of Christ to actually accomplish that to happen, he goes off. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. Rulers and authorities. Paul is probably in prison at the writing of this letter. And here he acknowledges that all of these rulers, all of these authorities, all of these things seen and unseen, everything in heaven, everything on earth, was created through him and by him and for him. In these five verses, 5 through 20, Paul uses the word all seven times. Essentially, he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. All things in creation. All things by him, through him, for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Verse 15, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Later, he repeats this idea in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This echoes uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, at the beginning of uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John writes in his gospel, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son is the glory of God. The glory of God in Christ Jesus. We talked about this during Advent. When we looked at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5 says this, and the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together the glory of god the manifestation of his holiness he is the image of the invisible god see this this was the kind of talk that really got jesus in trouble You know, when he would identify himself with the Father, when he would say things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. See, this is an issue of divinity. This is an issue of the relationship within the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Paul starts off in going after this false teaching by lifting up the name of Christ not just getting into petty arguments or blog posts back and forth, or he's not just going to tweet something frivolous. He's going to go after it and say, if you're going to go after Jesus, I'm going to lift him up. And in doing so, in focusing upon Christ himself, these other things come into focus. In him... The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible Father. Not only did He exist, though, before all things, all creation, which means no angels, no animals, no man, no earth, nor what's in the earth, nothing in heaven. None of these things existed before Him. He's the firstborn of all creation. And as we study throughout Genesis Being firstborn has a lot of meaning to it. He is the firstborn of all creation. But not only did he exist before all of those things, but all things were created in heaven and earth by him. Let that soak in. All things in all of creation created by Jesus through Him and for Him. The pastor and theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, when he was asked about this question of, what does it mean that everything was created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus? Like, wh- what is that, ultimately what does that mean? He said this, don't ask me to explain it. All I know is that when the Father came to create he did it through his son. When there was nothing and when the Father decided to create, he said to the son, "I'm going to do all of this through you." I confess that I don't know exactly. I have read everybody I can read on it, and they don't know either. But this this is what it means to yield to the truth of the scriptures not just to go with our affections and try to to fill in the blanks and and make something up that's more more acceptable in our culture or in our church or in our hearts and our own minds for a personal Jesus, ultimately a fictional Jesus. No, we, we go to God's Word and in doing so, we marvel, we strive to conceive of such an idea that God the Father would create all of these things by, through, and for the Son. It's hard to conceive such an idea. But Lloyd-Jones said this, that is the trouble with all of us who are Christians. We do not realize the things we ought to. The things are so stupendous, so majestic, so immense that we cannot rise to it. Our minds boggle. Our imaginations are utterly defeated. But we must try. Try. We try to wonder, to delight, to get lost in the greatness of God. And we were, when we are lost in his greatness, his majesty, lost in the wonder of his glory, that... Is worship. All things created by Him, through Him, and for Him. For Him. All things exist for the purpose of Him. All creation was created and is held together now, in this moment, for Him. This echoes Paul in his letter to the Romans when he said this in chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. These words in in their original Greek and also in English are so simple. These little, small words. Essentially, the verse just says, from him, through him, to him. All. I mean, do, do you pick up on how profound that is? I mean, how huge that is, that, that all of these things around us, from the giant corporations to your children, to your job, to, to your spouse, to your home, that all of these things have existence for him? Not you these are hard truths to, to, to even begin to imagine, to begin to understand. But we must try. And that these things are held together in him. I started reading uh, because quantum physics like fascinates me, but it fascinates me like... Uh, you know, when I see someone that's, that's uh, very muscular, I look at it and say, like, I bet that's hard. <laughs> and that's kind of it. Like, that's, that's as deep as I'm willing to go. Like, I don't really, I don't really need to know how y- you work out or, like, what your routine is or what your diet. I really don't care about your diet, any of those things. I don't care. Um, but but I'll be like, hey, like you, way to go, way to go on that whole exercise thing. <laughs> uh, but the same thing with quantum physics, like it's it's fascinating, it's wild, it's crazy. Like the the non locality, like where you can take these particles, these quantum particles, and and you can create distance between them and through entanglement and these other big words, like you can do something to a particle in one place and it makes a difference in the particle somewhere else. After I read that, I blacked out for a while. And when I woke up, I really didn't care that much anymore. But it's, I mean, just fascinating things, like on these small, tiny levels, that, that the way things are held together, like the, the most that we can zoom in and look into how the very particles of our being are held together and ultimately the answer to that is Christ. That changes things and it should change you. He is before all things. He is above all things. Above all things or towering over is actually kind of a classical definition of preeminent. That Jesus towers above everything. Usually when the word preeminent is used is like with a scholar, you know, preeminent in some field. Paul qualifies it by saying everything. Preeminent in everything. All He is before all things. One of the things that's particularly mentioned here is that he is over the church. Paul is saying that your little church in the little city that you live in, Jesus is head over that. Now, he's head over all of the church, but but don't forget that even though there might be these false teachers causing a stir, getting some attention, taking up your time, tossing you to and fro in false doctrine, Christ is head of that church. Christ is over you. He is over you because he is over all things. He is preeminent in everything. This means that the existence and the being of all is rooted in the purpose of God's greatness. In all he is preeminent. These are very packed verses. If you if you haven't noticed. I mean we we went through where we were trucking through like 30 verses of Genesis. And here we are with with five verses so complex, so profound like that we could spend this entire four-week study in Colossians over just a few words. And then he gets into one more point in his digression. Look at verse 20. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This assumes something. That we need peace. You see, he's saying that that Christ is reconciling all things to himself in heaven and on earth. He is making peace by the blood. Peace by the blood of his cross. But do we need peace? And if so, why? You see, we don't just move past these things and think of this gift of peace being like uh, you know, a gift from a relative at Christmas. You know, like the distant relative. You didn't ask for it. You don't really want it, but you're just going to say thanks for it. I got one of those like mock turtleneck things as a kid, you know, like the, where's the rest of my turtleneck, turtlenecks? Uh, yeah, I got that from a relative. Thank you. It's the thing that you don't need, don't want, didn't ask for, but thanks. That's not what this peace is. This peace is necessary. This reconciliation is necessary. And it's a reconciliation between us and the Father. That is the need for peace. Back in Romans, uh, Paul writes of this need for reconciliation and peace. Chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Enemies. the, The peace, we can assume that there is conflict, and that conflict has to be resolved. In lifting high the name of Christ, in Paul, going after this false teaching by proclaiming the preeminence of Jesus. He gets after what's at the heart of this. That we stand reconciled to God because of the blood of the cross, the atonement purchased for us. That we might have peace with God. We cannot go on with our personally defined Jesus, our preferred ideas of Jesus. We have to see Jesus as he is in his word. It's appealing, I know, to design our own way, what works for us, a Jesus that we can kind of fine-tune a couple of things. But that's not what we have in the scripture and you can even, here's a, here's a caution, you, you can have a sense of peace about your imaginary Jesus. Like I've talked to a lot of people that have been at peace when they were in the midst and the thick of outright sin. I, you know, but I, I just, I have a peace about it. Right. That's part of the deception. But that's part of the deceit of sin is that you feel a peace about it. You feel okay. And we can do that with our imaginary Jesus. This is why we must yield to the Spirit and the Word. The Son who gives all things existence gave us peace by His blood, that in all things He might be preeminent, Now, we do not make Jesus preeminent. We recognize that He is preeminent. Faith in Christ is not just a game of doctrinal jinga where we just stack up over time and just hope that nothing comes in and knocks it all down. No. The truth of Scripture is a reality that we are awakening to through revelation. This is a reality that we can neglect and we will get tossed around. As Paul says in a letter to a church that's just a hundred miles away, he says this to the Ephesians. We grow that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We can neglect the truth We can suffer the consequences of not living in light of the truth, but our neglect does not change the truth. He is preeminent. He is towering above all things. And he is reconciling all things. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones called, the great remaking is coming. And so we don't have to hold on to these imaginary images, these imaginary thoughts of Jesus. We can come to the truth. We can see him in all of his greatness. And we can worship our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in light of the truth. And not just to the delight of, of our intellect or our affections. We can lift high the name of Christ. The truth of God doesn't exist simply to be agreed upon. The truth of God exists to remake us. You are a part of the all things created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. You are a part of the all things that Jesus has reconciled and is remaking. Delight in this truth Declare this truth, hope in this truth, and believe in the grace of God in truth. This is the gospel. And this is why Paul was so eager to digress. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that through the Spirit we can know truth, and that in that truth we wouldn't just gain intellect, we wouldn't just gain knowledge, but that we would know you. Lord, protect us from trying to just grow in our intellect, but teach us what it means to know you as Father, Son, and Spirit. Teach us what it means. That all that is around us is for you. That we would live lives that would call to the truth that Christ towers above everything. That he would be preeminent in our priorities. In the way that we spend our time our resources, our attention, our affections, our intellect, that in all things, we would live in the truth that He is preeminent. And that when confusion comes, we would fight fiction by lifting high the name of Christ. For from Him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.